Luke 9.22 The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Let's pray. Father, this Christmas we are thankful. We are thankful for the ways you have blessed us. We, we are thankful for falling snow and, and the, the beauty that you provide amidst deadness. We thank you for the warmth of our space on a cold day, a privilege so many do not enjoy. But we thank you mostly that you sent a Savior into this world And that he came for so many reasons as we've looked at. But we thank you this morning especially that he came to die. God, we are cognizant of the fact that Christmas is uh, regarded as a celebratory occasion. That it is uh, regarded as a, a party. It is regarded as fun. It is regarded as cheer. And much of that is for very good reason. And yet, we know there are many, maybe even those here for whom Christmas is painful, it is sad, it is difficult. And so, we pray that you be um, with the spirits of those who are here today, for whom there is a darkness that surrounds this date that you would comfort them, that you would give them a joy that is far greater than any earthly celebration or any worldly comfort, and that in that joy they would have great peace and satisfaction. Their joy would be rooted in your very person. Because we know that when our joy is in you, God, it cannot be taken from us. And God, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the globe for whom this day is difficult. And for some reason, God, I'm drawn to Bethlehem and I'm, I'm drawn to that town that we celebrate on Christmas and thinking about the difficulties and trials of that town in the present day and the small band of Christians who live in and around Bethlehem. We pray for them that you would encourage their spirits, that you would keep them safe and give them a boldness to proclaim the gospel as a minority of minorities. That they would be bold to speak the truth of a Savior. to Muslim and to Jew alike, and to all those who reside there. Knowing that we have brothers and sisters in such difficult places, God, may our witness be even bolder and our light grow brighter when we face no persecutions, no difficulties. May we proclaim your truth well here in Cleveland. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
You know, in our popular retelling of the uh, Christmas story, we, we display a nativity scene, maybe not unlike that one up there. And the, the basic pieces, right, are the, the infant Jesus, his mother Mary, his adoptive father Joseph, and then commonly included, though generally unmentioned, are, are various animals. Our typical picture is, is uh, a stable outside of a rustic first century motel. It's more likely, though, that the birth took place in a home. Probably the home of one of Joseph's ancestors, or one of his relatives, excuse me. Uh, any of the animals that were present would have been brought inside to keep them warm on a winter night, perhaps. And to help keep the home itself warm from the extra body heat of those animals. Shepherds came, and so we often place one or more of those in our nativity scenes, uh, often imagining that they brought some lambs with them, though the Bible doesn't mention uh, they're bringing any lambs with them. We we tend to include an angel uh, with our nativity. It's a nod, I guess, to the, the angel who gave notice to the shepherds in the fields as they watched their sheep. But of course, that one angel was joined by a myriad of angels and appeared at the field, not at the manger. And last but not least, we place three wise men in our nativity. Sometimes they are riding camels or horses, uh, indicating that they have traveled a long way, and they're always bearing gifts. Luke tells us that magi came from the east and brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Probably we think there were three wise men because there were three gifts that Luke mentions, but the Bible never tells us that there were three or that those were the only three gifts for that matter. But despite the fact that the Bible clearly talks about these men, they are probably the most out of place in our displays. Because the Bible doesn't tell us when they came, and they almost certainly were not present the day or let alone night of Jesus' birth. So they likely would not have been there with shepherds. shepherds. And it's hard to know how long Mary and Joseph stayed in Bethlehem. We get the sense that they might have been there a little while. But the wise men or the magi almost certainly came later. They were from the east, which likely meant Persia, maybe Arabia. And that makes them out of place in quite another sense. They were ethnically and spiritually Gentiles seemingly having nothing in common with this Jewish baby born in humble circumstances in a small, out-of-the-way, ramshackle town outside of Jerusalem. They were likely astrologers, sorcerers. And as such, under Jewish law, they ought to have been put to death. And the typical observant first-century Jew would have desired to do little with such a person. And yet these men carried with them a certain prestige. We always dressed them in, in fancy robes and turbans and gowns. Uh, as wise men, uh, or magi, if you will, uh, they would have been men of high rank in their homeland. And yet, in a spiritual manner of speaking, they would have been in every way seemingly very far from God. 
And yet here they are, bearing gifts for a Jewish baby. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold was, as it is, the standard symbol of wealth and power. It's a a metal fit for a king. Frankincense uh, is a costly resin used for burning incense as an offering to God in the Jewish temple. They were poignant gifts. But just as striking as myrrh, likewise an expensive resin, perhaps most notably it could be used in embalming concoctions, preparing the dead for burial. Strange gift for a newborn child. This Christmas season, we've been exploring some of the many reasons Jesus came, and we're going to continue that series for the next two Sundays, after this Sunday. But this morning, we look at Jesus' death. We typically don't think of Jesus' death as a Christmas theme, but if we don't understand his death, then we don't understand his birth. So in Luke 9, 22, Jesus points us to his death. A a shocking identity, a shocking necessity, and a a shocking reality. So let's unpack this. I say that in in Luke 9, 22, uh, Jesus points us first to a shocking identity. And what I mean is, he calls himself the Son of Man. Now, a Son of Man is a, a rich term in the Bible. The most basic sense of Son of Man is human. Uh, that is the, the, the way it is typically used. It appears frequently in the Old Testament in the phrase Ben Adam. Ben, the Hebrew word for son. Adam, Adam, the generic word for man, a son of Adam. And I understand that that term is still used in many Semitic cultures today. And so where we might say, what can I, what can I do? I'm only human. Another number of cultures might say, what can I do? I'm only Ben-Adam, a son of Adam. I'm only human. C.S. Lewis picked up on this moniker uh, in his Narnia series, and, and humans were either sons of Adam or they were daughters of Eve. There's a close connection there that he picked up on. But the use of this term son of man in its Aramaic form, rather than Hebrew, in the book of Daniel of the Old Testament causes it to gain some greater significance in Jewish religious belief. In Daniel 7, the Hebrew prophet Daniel, then a servant and a counselor of the Babylonian king, had a vision. And he describes it this way. He says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The vision's a fascinating one because he sees one like a son of man receiving dominion over all the earth from the hand of the Ancient of Days, who is God. And it's uncertain why Daniel chooses to write that the figure was like a son of man. 
But I suspect that he was emphasizing that the figure, by all appearances, was human. Yet a merely human figure seemed inadequate. After all, with, with whom could God share his eternal rule? In fact, Daniel was alarmed by this and other visions he had. And he sought guidance, apparently, from some sort of angelic figure who explained the meaning. And by the angel's words, the kingdom was God's kingdom. But the angel never explicitly identifies who this one like a son of man is. But thereafter, this son of man becomes a figure of Jewish religious expectations. He was generally identified with the Messiah, God's chosen king. And there was hope that when the son of man appears, he will gloriously reign, overthrowing the enemies of God's people, setting up an eternal kingdom of justice and righteousness. The son of man was a king. Perhaps the details were not entirely clear, but he was a ruler. So in identifying himself as the Son of Man, Jesus is placing himself as the answer to Jewish hopes and longings, in a manner of speaking. In fact, the episode that prompts this statement from Jesus is one in which he quizzes his disciples about his very identity. In the previous verses, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they say, well, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets of old has risen from the dead. And he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, the Christ of God, the Messiah of God. The Messiah was variously portrayed in the Old Testament. But Jesus immediately goes to the portrayal as ruling judging, eternal Son of Man. Peter answers, you are the Christ of God. And Jesus says, the Son of Man must. I wonder if when Jesus told Peter he was correct and then immediately spoke the words Son of Man, a tingle, a shiver, went through the disciples for a split second as they contemplated the glories of what they imagined would shortly be coming. The Son of Man, the Messiah, the one who would receive the kingdom from the Ancient of Days. But Jesus, as he often did, quickly rewrote the expectations of his followers. He does that by giving them a shocking necessity. Your text in front of you will say must. The Son of Man must. And we're, we're likely to overlook a, a simple term like must, but it would be a mistake because underlying the word must is a simple verb that occurs in the Gospels um, and, and elsewhere, and it means something like it is necessary. And the authors of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, when they use the word with Jesus as the functional subject, they often use it in peculiar ways. Uh, one of the more famous examples is when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. You might remember that story. John writes that it was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. 
But from a normal Jewish accounting, it wasn't necessary at all. Jews routinely went out of their way to avoid Samaria because they deemed the Samaritans an unclean people. They were half Jew and half Gentile. They were a mixed breed. They were dogs. They were dirty. And so Jews would routinely take extended routes around Samaria to avoid going through that territory. There was no need from a human or Jewish perspective for Jesus to travel through Samaria. What this little world, uh, excuse me, what this little word doesn't say is what makes the thing necessary or required. Who or what makes the thing necessary? It was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. Left unsaid is what made it necessary or who made it necessary. And so we determine that from the context. And often, as often as not, when Jesus is the subject of this sort of necessariness, the sensible context, the only sensible context, is the eternal purpose of God. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Because it was part of God's eternal plan that he go through Samaria and speak with that woman at the well. So what Jesus says then is quite radical here, and we mustn't miss it, or we could say it is necessary to not miss it. Jesus is saying that the preordained purpose of the Father is for the messianic Son of Man to endure this subsequent string of verbs, a string of verbs that includes suffer, be rejected, and put to death. The fact that this is all necessary and that Jesus knows it is necessary is important. It means that Jesus' death was not an accident. It's not as if Jesus didn't see it coming. It's not as if he expected to be crowned king in Jerusalem in a short time. On the contrary, Jesus was resolved to this purpose. He was not a failed Messiah, as some of his critics have alleged. If he intended to receive earthly glory in A.D. 33 and was instead crucified, then he was a failure. But if he intended to die, then he wasn't a failure. He was a success. You can paint him other ways. He, he might have been a liar or a lunatic, to use C.S. Lewis's terms, but he certainly was not a failure. He doesn't give us that option. What he was about to do was necessary. And what he was about to do was a shocking reality. While the disciples may have felt a, a shiver or a tingle when they heard their master say, the Son of Man must, they were likely quite troubled by his next words. Suffer, reject, die, 
rise? Surely the Son of Man must receive a kingdom. He must be glorified by the nations of the world. He must reign forever. But suffer? Be rejected by his own people, the Jewish people. The Son of Man was to come for the Jewish people amidst their captivity in Babylon, in Rome, in this world. Would the Jewish leaders reject him finally and die? By no means. Of course, Jesus says he will rise and we'll mainly leave that for next week and maybe that leaves out some hope, but whether it's talking about resurrection, whether Jesus is talking about resurrection or he's talking about the the whole package of suffering, rejection, and death that go with it, it's still likely no good for Jesus' disciples. The biblical scholar I. Howard Marshall puts it succinctly. He says, the idea that Jesus would die and be resurrected would not have been strange or inconceivable to disciples who knew of the raising of the widow's son and Jairus' daughter. Hence the difficulty of the saying lies in the facts that this could happen to the Son of Man and that it was a necessary, divinely ordained part of his source. In other words, from the disciples' perspective, this wasn't part of the plan of God. This wasn't the part that God's chosen king, the Messiah, was supposed to play. It was a miserable fate. First he would suffer. Not once, but many things. And we would see that he would indeed suffer. He suffered the shame, humiliation, insults, flogging, beating, and not to mention the great anguish he had for those whom he loved. then of course he is rejected. The groups mentioned here would have composed the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, which would make determinations of religious life among the Jews. That is the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. They were, in theory, the very ones who should recognize Messiah. They ought to have been among the most faithful and the most knowledgeable But they did, in fact, reject him. The priestly class, the Sadducees, probably rejected him for Jesus' criticism of their ostentatious displays and his rebukes of their poor knowledge of God's word. And the rabbinical class and the Pharisees were probably rejecting Jesus for his criticism of their hollow and hypocritical morality. The first group saw him as a threat to the temple. The second group saw him as a threat to their law. They judged him guilty and they sent him to Gentile Roman authorities to have him put to death. And he died. He hung on the cross that torture device of the ancient Phoenicians 
and he was offered wine mixed with myrrh, a primitive concoction designed to dull the senses slightly before the agonizing pain. Jesus refused it. After he had died, when he could no longer refuse anything, a disciple named Nicodemus made way to his stone-cut tomb and he embalmed, embalmed the body with myrrh and aloes. The death had been necessary since the birth and from cradle to grave, Jesus' life was marked at its extremities by that deathly resin of myrrh. Why though? Why was this death necessary? Why must a child be born for the very purpose of dying? A couple weeks ago, we discussed that Jesus came to serve. At one point, Jesus explained to his disciples, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve but his greatest act of service was a death as a ransom. A ransom is a release upon payment, or sometimes the payment that secures release. Earlier this week, U.S. government uh, officials made an announcement that North Korea was indeed behind a major ransomware attack from earlier this year called WannaCry. Ransomware is uh, malicious software that demands a ransom to prevent it from destroying your files or otherwise compromising your system. In this case, the software infected the computers all over the world and encrypted all the files so that they could not be accessed. And instead, users saw a message on their screen that demanded payment by Bitcoin to an anonymous source in the amount of $300. After three days, the amount would double to $600, and after a week, their files would remain permanently inaccessible. It's called a ransomware attack because by making the payment, one could secure the release of files from the encryption. The payment is a ransom. Jesus' death was necessary because it was a ransom. It was a ransom to secure the release of sinners from the penalty of their sin, an eternal death in hell. Your very soul, your very existence is being held because you owe a debt that you cannot pay that is the record of your rebellion against God and his goodness. And at Christmas, God became man so that a sinless man, Jesus, could die in the place of very sinful men. A substitute. A ransom. He paid the penalty we deserved so that we might go free. We don't usually associate Christmas with death, but make no mistake, Christmas was very much about death. A saving, 
ransoming death for all who take hold of it. How do we access that, that payment? How do we access that ransom? How do we take hold of it? Jesus continues in chapter 9 of Luke. Verse 23, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus says he is going to die. And if you want to follow him, you must take up your cross. In the ancient Roman world, there would have been no doubt about what that meant. The cross only meant one thing. It meant death. It was a word you wouldn't use in polite company. It wasn't something people talked about. They didn't do their executions in a, in a hidden room of a government building locked away at midnight where no one could see. The executions were public. They were on the side of the road so that as you walked by, you could see what happens to people who do wrong. You could see them in their agony and hear their groans, see their tortured faces and see the blood drip down their bodies in the dry, hot sun. You didn't talk about the cross. And so when Jesus says that if you want to come after me, if you want to be my follower, if you want to take hold of my death, you need to go through a type of death. You must die to yourself. We live our lives with our, ourselves being our greatest priority, our, our highest value. And Jesus says, no. If you want to be my follower, then you must put me first. You must put Jesus first above anything and everything you might cling to in this life. He says, among other things, he says, uh, what, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And yet we strive to gain the world, don't we? Whether it's money. Perhaps we don't desire to be rich, but we want to be comfortable. We, we desire uh, money. We desire prestige. Maybe we don't want to be terribly famous, but we want to have a, a great reputation at work. We want people to know who we are and recognize our hard work and our efforts, and, and, and we want people to know that we're good at what we do. Uh, we want our neighbors to think that we're that great neighbor. We want our parents to think that we're the great son or the great daughter in the family. We are striving constantly for the accolades of this world and the wealth of this world and the things that this world can provide us. We are constantly striving for them, and sometimes in small ways and sometimes in big ways. And Jesus says, you can have that all, but you will lose your soul. Put me first. 
above all the other things that you might scramble for in this life. He says, you need to put me above what other people think of you. He says, anyone who's ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of that person on the day when I do come with the kingdom that I've received from the ancient of days. Have you been ashamed? In other words, what people think of you must be far lower on the totem pole than what Jesus thinks of you. Jesus has to be first. Jesus has to be above anything and everything you crave or desire in this life. It's what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance is a, is a word that gets tossed around in religious circles, and sometimes maybe we don't get a good sign of what it means, but fundamentally, repentance is about a change. It's a, it's a change in orientation from pursuing the things that are away from God and turning around to pursuing God Himself. It's about changing the orientation of our thoughts to disagreeing with God and saying, no, that those things that you say are bad are good and those things which you say are good are bad and you change your mind and you agree with God and you confess with God. I believe that what you say is good is good and what you say is bad is bad. It's a total change in orientation in our thoughts, in our lifestyles, in our actions, in our words. That's Nothing short of a death to an old way of living to find an eternal life and a Savior. And if you've never thought about Christmas as a death, I would encourage you this morning to ask yourself, if there was a Savior that died for you, have you died to you? to take hold of his gift. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, are amazed, I, I hope, at the goodness of your giftings to us that you sent a son to suffer, to be rejected, to die that we rebellious sinners might find new life in his death. I pray for those who are interested in this, who, who don't understand this, who, who have not come to, to having this type of faith and repentance. You would stick a, a needle in their hearts, God, and, 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 and twist it until they can no longer stand it. They need to seek you out. I 
pray they would be bold to ask questions, that they would, that they would turn to another person here this morning or this week or, or maybe at a family member's house later this afternoon. Say, tell me about this, Jesus. And for those who do know him, who have this faith and this repentance, God, may we never be ashamed of your son, Jesus, but may we boldly proclaim him even today as we go perhaps to families who do not receive him, who do not recognize him, but who have, like the religious leaders of his day, rejected him. May we lovingly, calmly, boldly, share the hope of Christmas in the death of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing a, another praise to our God.